the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a snippet out of the life of Elisha and examining examining that on Lord's Day evenings. A few years ago, in 2016 and 2017, I did a a 20-part series here on the life of Elijah. And it made sense at that time to follow up with a series on the life of Elisha, but I didn't do so. At some point in the next few years, my intention is to give Elisha the full treatment. And so we will spend well over a year on Sunday evenings on that, God helping us. But for the month of December, perhaps a little longer, we're going to look at a simple, brief occurrence in 2 Kings 5. I hope you have your Bible open, because we're going to be studying this at least four and perhaps more Sunday nights. The text has two leading actors, Elisha and Naaman, and two supporting actors, an unnamed girl and Gehazi. And I want to introduce three of those to you tonight. The narrative of the the healing of Naaman the leper is one of the most brilliant and compelling chapters in Scripture. As literature, it's a magnificent piece of writing with astounding character development and conflict. It's so simple that young children can understand, remember, and profit. And I hope you'll plan to study this text with us for the next four Sunday nights, the 4th, the 11th, the 18th, and yes, the 25th. We will gather for worship on the evening of December 25th, as we do every other Lord's Day. So I hope you have your copy of God's Word open, preparing to be deeply immersed in it as we study tonight and analyze and apply this powerful narrative. We will actually only get through verse 3 tonight. And so I hope you'll roll up your sleeves and prepare to dig in. Let's pray together now. O Sovereign Lord, source of all light. By your word, give light to our souls, pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds might be opened. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to briefly introduce you to three of the characters in the saga tonight and begin with the obvious character, and that is Elisha. And I want to remind you who he is. Perhaps it's been a while since you've studied First and Second Kings. And so let me introduce you all over again to Elisha, who plays a central role in this text. The chronological setting when you open your copy of Second Kings 5 is about 820 B.C. It's been 150 years since the death of David. The nation of Israel is divided into a northern and southern kingdom and is steeped in idol worship. And in 1 Kings 19, we meet Elisha, when the prophet Elijah is naming him as his successor. Listen to how that happens in 1 Kings 19. We read that Elijah departed and found Elisha, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was the 12th. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my mother and father and I'll follow you. Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, gave it to the people, and they ate. He arose, followed Elijah, and became his servant. In the Old Testament, the Lord provided an ongoing succession of prophets for the people of God. These were the the successors of Moses. Almost every king in the history of the two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom, would have a prophet as his conscience. The prophets would, would call on the rulers of Israel to rule in obedience to the law of God. 
So I want you to think about this transfer of power. How did Elisha get to be the prophet in Israel? Well, Elijah, his successor, his predecessor, walks out into the field where he's busy plowing and engages in the oddest act. He throws his mantle over Elisha. A mantle was the official garment of the prophet made of animal skin or hair. It represented a lifetime of sacrifice and commitment. And by throwing his mantle over the shoulder of Elisha, it was a symbolic act summoning him to the office of prophet. It was like a conductor handing a baton to his successor or a judge handing a gavel to his replacement. It symbolized the transfer of power. So Elisha's anointing for the office of prophet was not with water, but with a garment. It's a wordless call, but one he immediately understood. And so we're told these words in 1 Kings 19, that Elisha arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. For the next several years, Elisha was discipled one-on-one by the older man Elijah. It's the same relationship that existed between Moses and Joshua, Paul and Timothy, or the ultimate model between Jesus and the Twelve. And Elisha, at the feet of Elijah, received a world-class education in theology and practical ministry skills. He learned servanthood to the point of being the one, we are told in Scripture, who washed Elijah's hands, reminiscent of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. He learns how to be faithful in small things before God entrusts big things to him. He learns the lesson that Jesus will teach his disciples, whoever desires to be great among you shall first be your servant. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha, knowing it's time to take up his ministry as the prophet in Israel, asks his mentor, his spiritual father Elijah, give me a double portion of your spirit. And if you do a careful study of the life of Elisha, we'll only be looking at one chapter in his life. It's more than interesting that Elisha, after asking for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, actually performs, at least recorded in scripture, more than twice as many miracles as did Elijah. And the duration of his ministry is roughly twice the length of Elijah's. Elisha is to be greatly commended because in that moment before Elijah is taken away in a chariot of fire, he doesn't ask for anything temporal or financial. He asked for spiritual gifts and abilities, for ministry equipping. And then he stands and watches as his mentor Elijah is taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. That's the prophet who's going to be the point of discussion in this chapter. The second person we'll meet. Look at verse 1 of your copy of 2 Kings 5. And we meet Naaman. He's going to be the recipient of a, of a profound miracle. Let me tell you six things about Naaman that are recorded. Uh, I, I can't tell you how often I have conversations with people saying, don't speculate, don't fill in where the Bible is silent, be content with what Scripture teaches. Look at verse 1, and you get a full development of Naaman's character. You don't have to make anything up. It's right there. Six things we know. First of all, he was, we are told, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Whether or not he had risen up through the ranks, we can't be sure, though the reference later in the verse to his valor indicates that he had probably been promoted from a lower office. And so he occupies a, a position of prominence, being at the summit of his profession. Second thing we know about Naaman, we are told that he was a great man in the eyes of his master. 
It's not always the case that the head of a nation's military is greatly esteemed by the civil ruler. History records many instances, many in our own nation's history, where the civil ruler has been jealous of the popularity enjoyed by the general. I think of President Harry Truman and how jealous he was of General Douglas MacArthur. But it was quite otherwise in this case. Look at what we're told about Naaman. We are told that he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. And so the king of Syria was warmly devoted to him, was appreciative of him as a military commander. A third thing you should know about Naaman. Look again at verse 1. He's an honorable man. Far from the king sliding Naaman and keeping him in the background, he was honored by the king. He stood high in, in royal favor. A fourth thing you should know about Naaman. And now we begin to dig in deep, and we are carrying on with a theme that we introduced this morning, the sovereignty and the providence of God. Because what we see here, and this is mystifying to many who don't understand the ways of God, is Naaman's military success is directly ascribed to God. Our passage says in verse 1, By him the Lord had given victory to Syria. God in his divine providence had made use of Naaman in accomplishing his will. And what this text is teaching us is that there can be no success in any sphere of life unless God gives it. For unless the Lord builds the house in uh, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. God exercises his sovereignty in the instruments used in the carrying out of his purposes whether it be in the communicating of blessings or the execution of judgments. Now, it has to be pointed out here for those who think, oh, this is because the reason why God has given him such victory is because he's a godly man. No, he's a pagan man. He's an idolater. We're going to find out later in the chapter in verse 18 that he is a worshiper of Remen, a false god. And from this, what we learn is that when the Most High God is pleased to do so, he makes use of the wicked as well as the righteous, a truth that desperately needs to be taught to us over and over again. Temporal success is far from an evidence that the blessing of God rests upon a person or the nation enjoying it. All men are in God's hands to employ and use as he pleases in the political and military realm and in the nation. A fifth thing you should know about Naaman. Naaman was endowed with qualities which are highly esteemed among men. He was a man's man, being possessed of great bravery. Look what we're told in verse 1. We are told he was a mighty man of valor. In other words, he had courage, daring and fearless, well-equipped to be a general in the military. And it might be asked after we look at this brief summary of these first five traits... What more could any man desire? Didn't he possess everything that was prized by the world? Didn't he have all that the human heart could wish? He occupied a, a most enviable position. He possessed traits that were admired by his fellow man. He'd served his country well. He was regarded highly by the king. Sixth, there was a dark cloud on his horizon. Something which not only spoiled his life every day, but took away all hope for the future. Look at the short assertion in verse 1. He was a leper. 
This cast an awful shadow over everything else. He was the victim of a, a loathsome and an incurable disease. He was a pitiable and repulsive man with no prospect for any improvement in his condition. This highly privileged man who just a moment ago you thought he has everything. He was a leper. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is Naaman is meant to be a picture. A picture of you and I. Of what we are by nature. We're going to see that this is a glorious picture of the gospel. The cleansing power of the gospel. And Naaman is us. God's word doesn't flatter man. It lays him in the dust, which is one reason why the word of God is so unpalatable uh, unpalatable to the great majority of people. It's the word of truth. And therefore, instead of painting flattering pictures of human nature, it represents things as they actually are. Instead of lauding and celebrating man, it lowers him. A ministerial friend of mine was telling me about a funeral that he had preached and He'd preached the funeral, he'd preached the gospel, and he'd said of the the deceased person, this person was certainly a sinner, but they knew the grace of God. And family members came up to him afterwards and said, don't say that our family member was a sinner. My pastoral friend said, well, it's true. And started quoting scripture, and they said, we don't want to hear it, and turned and stormed off. Well, scripture doesn't flatter us. Instead of speaking of the goodness of human nature, Scripture declares us to be leprous, corrupt, defiled, and depraved. When Scriptures define what man is towards God, it insists from Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. The Word of God declares that by nature, according to Ephesians 4, we are all alienated from the life of God. You may occupy a a very worthwhile position in this world, even a high station in the culture. You may have made good in your vocation and be praiseworthy to your fellow human beings. But how do you appear in the eyes of God? What we're going to see over the next four or five weeks, perhaps is that the unregenerate man is a Naaman. He's a leper. And this is going to be the first lesson that we learn from our text. As it was with Naaman, so it is with you and I. A vast difference between his worldly circumstances and his condition. This is the great exception. When you read verse 1, you read, yes, 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 oh. But this negates it all. He's a, a leper. We wouldn't be faithful to you and to our calling if we were to glide over this this part of God's word, which is distasteful to proud flesh and blood. It's in your soul's interest and mind that we look at this humiliating and unpleasant fact that in God's sight, this is the state of unconverted men, lepers. And so I want you to dig deeper with me and think about this issue of leprosy. As I said, we will see that Naaman is a a picture, a technicolor 3D picture of you and I and our need for cleansing. And so let me point out eight truths about leprosy that you should know. Because leprosy is repeatedly used in Scripture as a figure for sin and the deadening, crushing nature of sin. 
First is, leprosy has a a very insignificant beginning. To the non-observant eye, it's almost always imperceptible. According to Leviticus 13, it uses these terms. Leprosy starts as, as a scab or a bright spot. It's so trivial that usually no attention is paid to it. Little or no warning is given of the fearful havoc it will wreak. And wasn't that the case with the entrance of sin into the world? To the natural man, the eating of the forbidden fruit by our first parents appeared to be a a very small matter compared with the awful effects it produced. The unregenerate man doesn't discern for a minute that sin is not to be trifled with. The second thing you should know about leprosy. Leprosy works insidiously, almost imperceptibly. It's a disease which at first, in the first few months, perhaps years, in the early stages, it's attended by little if no pain, only in its latter stages, when its horrible effects reveal themselves, is it unmistakably made manifest. And so it is with most of our sin. Sin is so subtle and sly that for the most part its subjects are quite unconscious of its workings. This is why the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 3 the deceitfulness of sin. It starts out slow and small. It's not until the Holy Spirit convicts a man that one is made aware of the sinfulness and extent of sin and begins to feel the plague of his own heart. In fact, it's not till a man is regenerate, born again, until he learns that his very nature is depraved to the core. Only as the sinner grows old in sin does he discover what a fearful hold his lusts have upon him. A third thing you should know about leprosy is leprosy spreads with deadly speed. It begins with spots on the skin that are tiny at first. They gradually increase in size, slowly but surely the whole body is affected. The corruption extends inwardly and spreads outwardly at the same time. It it even reaches to the bones and marrow. It continues eating its way through the flesh until nothing but the skeleton is left. When you see somebody in the last stages of, of leprosy, they have no skin on their hands. You can see their bones. And this is what sin has done in man. It's corrupted every part of his being so that he's totally depraved. No member, no part of his constitution has escaped defilement. Heart, will, mind, conscience, soul, body are all equally poisoned. This is why Paul can say in Romans 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. The fourth thing you should know about leprosy. It is particularly gruesome. There's hardly anything more repellent to see physically than to look at somebody upon whom this awful disease has taken hold. Go home tonight, go on YouTube, or go on Google Images and Google men with leprosy. And I will guarantee you'll not be able to look. Except you are the most callous or you do so with the most pity you'll turn away from the sight with a shudder. Under Judaism, there was no physician who could minister to the leper, no cure. And all of this is a a picture of how infinitely more repellent is the sinner 
inside in the sight of him who is too pure to look at evil. The fifth thing that can be said about leprosy. It's been called by physicians a state of living death. The skin becomes discolored, looking like a dead body. There's loss of sensation, and so the the leper can poke himself with a, a fork, a knife, all day and feel nothing. The ulceration spreads. The fingers and the toes, nose and ears atrophy. Vision is impaired. Blindness results. As one medieval doctor said, leprosy is a walking sepulcher. And this is what sin is, a state of spiritual death. The sixth thing you should know about leprosy, especially in biblical culture, leprosy was always dealt with by banishment. No leper was allowed to stay in the congregation of Israel. The terms of the Mosaic law were most explicit. In Leviticus 13, God says, The leper shall dwell alone. His habituation will be, or his habitation shall be outside the camp. We can see how rigidly that was enforced, even in the case of Miriam, the sister of Moses in Numbers 12. As soon as she was diagnosed with leprosy, she was put outside the camp. The leper was deprived of all social interaction, ecclesiastical privileges. He was dealt to somebody who was dead. He was excluded from fellowship. And this is a visible sign of how God regards the sinner. For sin shuts out from his presence. The seventh truth you must know about the leper. Leprosy made its victims an object of shame. It robbed a man or a woman of the the bloom of health and it replaced it with that which is hideous. Excluding him from fellowship with God and his people, putting him outside the pale of decent civilization. And so the leper had to go about, according to the law in Leviticus 13, tearing his clothes with his head bare so that people could see the scabs and the way that leprosy was eating away at his face and his nose and his ears. And he had to put a covering over his upper lip and he had to cry out as he walked alone, unclean, unclean. It wasn't just painful. It wasn't just deadly. It was humiliating. And then an eighth truth you need to know about leprosy. It was incurable as far as the Old Testament was concerned. It was beyond all human aid. The outcome was inevitably fatal. There was no cure for leprosy. In like manner, sin is beyond human cure. It can't be eradicated. No power of will or effort of mind can cope with it. No legislation or reformation is of any avail. Education and culture can't fix it. But what is beyond the power of of man is possible with God. Where science and medicine stands helpless, God shows his sufficiency. We are told in Hebrews chapter 7, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. To the leper, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, be clean, and his leprosy was immediately cleansed. How profoundly thankful should the believer be that the blood of Jesus Christ, we're told in 1 John 1, cleanses us from all sin. The third character in our narrative. Look at verses 2 and 3. 
we meet an unnamed Jewish slave girl. She doesn't have a name, so unimportant is she viewed. Now, she has several strikes against her. She's a foreigner. She's an Israelite. She's in the country of Syria. She's been trafficked there as a slave. She's a young woman in a culture that values the wisdom and experience of the old and looks down on the young. She's a female in a culture that was completely male-dominated. And notice, to wrap all this up in verse 2 and 3, she's nameless. She's not even important enough to have her name written down. And she has been the victim of what we would call a dark providence. She's been kidnapped by the marauding pagan armies of Syria from a believing family. She's been carted hundreds of miles away to a culture that doesn't even speak her language, that's pagan, that doesn't know Jehovah, and this young girl is placed into forced servitude. No doubt for her there was plenty of heartache and tears and homesickness and terror. Now, I want to speak to this very briefly, and then in a moment, a whole lot more by way of application. I want you to think about the purpose of God's providence. We know this now because this incident is recorded in Scripture, and so we're told the purpose of God's providence, but she had no way of knowing this. She just knows, knew that one day she was snatched out of her home and taken far away. But God's purpose was for this young girl, to be used to bring a pagan leader to the true and saving knowledge of the triune God. We'll see it in verse 15. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about this young girl because she's an astounding thing. And you parents who have 10, 11, 12-year-old girls, listen to me very carefully. And I want you to think about your daughter right now. Could this saga be about her? How would she respond in such a situation? This girl may have been young. But she was very aware of what God was doing in Israel and who he'd raised up. Look at verse 3 carefully and what we're told about her. We're told in verse 3, she knew about the office of prophet. In other words, she knew that God had a mouthpiece. She knew where the true prophet lived. He lived in the Samaritan region of Israel. She knew that a true prophet had supernatural abilities. And this young girl, this is, this is astounding to me, is this young girl from the other miracles Elisha had done inferred, look at verse 3 carefully, inferred that he could cure her master. And from his willingness to do good to all men, she inferred that Elijah would cure her master even though he was a Gentile pagan. Now prepare to be shocked. This young lady is sharp. Keep one finger here and look at Luke chapter 4 and see what Jesus tells us about this healing by Elisha that we'll see in two or three Sunday nights. What makes this little girl's assessment so astounding is she's drawing inferences. In Luke chapter 4, verse 27, a passage that Mr. Rios read in your hearing a moment ago, look at what Jesus says in Luke 4, 27. It says, Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. 
And so let me go over that syllogism once again. This young girl had never seen or heard of Elisha the prophet cleansing a leper in Israel. But she infers. She's a good reasoner. She infers from the other miracles that Elisha had done, that Elisha, if she could just put her master in touch with Elisha, that he could cure her master. And she inferred that he was such a good man, she inferred that he was willing to do good to all men and that he would cure her master. Now obviously this young woman, look at her here in verse 3. She had been raised in a believing home in Israel before she was kidnapped. A home where her parents instructed her. If they had not, if they had not instructed her, she would be of no use in this situation. But she was a covenant child of the seed of Abraham. She actually wanted to carry through on the Abrahamic covenant. She wanted to be a blessing to pagan nations. She wanted good done to her lost master. She knew, for example, because she'd been raised in the scripture from the example of Joseph, how he'd been taken to be a slave in a pagan Gentile land, but God used him mightily. She had learned how to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Perhaps Paul had this girl in mind when he penned Ephesians 6. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service or as man-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. I want to stop and make several applications, because I just want to introduce you to the three, three of the four main characters. We'll meet Gehazi next week. I want to begin to make several applications because I'm troubled by how often people preach this text and they only focus on Naaman and Gehazi and they don't get how this young lady is a principal character. And the applications from her life are astounding. I want you to look by a way of application at the contrast between this young girl and her slave owner, Naaman. Naaman's the commander of a massive army. She's a POW. He was a Gentile. She was a hated Jew. He was a great man. She's but a young woman. He was Naaman. She was left unnamed. He was a leper. She, made a, she was made as a contributing instrument to his healing. And by the way, as we lower her, and as you see how she's basically nobody in that culture, She's a slave. People walked by her all day. They didn't know her name. They didn't remember. They didn't remember what she looked like. Nobody knew where she slept at night. Nobody knew what she ate. She was disposable. She's going to be the hero of the text. It's always been God's way to make use of the lowly, the despised, and the feeble in circumstances that seem strange to human wisdom. We are told in 1 Corinthians 1 that God is pleased to use the lowly to humble the mighty. And that's just what we're going to see in her life in the coming weeks. Now I want you to think too by way of application. Don't you suppose 
that this young girl and her parents were greatly perplexed. You see, her parents were left back in Israel. Their daughter was snatched out of their home by a raiding party, carried hundreds of miles away. Don't you think they were tried? Viewed this as a trial, this mysterious providence? Don't you think they did what many of us will do oftentimes when instead of saying, God is sovereign, he makes no mistake, he is on his throne. Don't you think they probably succumbed a time or two to the whys? Why, Lord? Why did you do this? Why? A hundred or two times. God, why have you allowed the joy of our home to be shattered? Why is, why is our daughter taken away? And she had asked perhaps, why am I a, a daughter of Abraham, now a slave in a Gentile house? Why this enforced separation from my parents? Why this cruel captivity? Do you perceive the point that we're leading up to? God had a good reason for this trial. He was shaping things in his own unfathomable way for the outworking of his good and wise purpose. Nothing happens in this world by mere chance. A predestinating God of providence has planned and executes every detail in your life. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 31, Lord, my times are in your hand. What a resting place for our hearts. I would also point out by God's providence, it was God who sovereignly ordained before the foundation of the world that this young lady should become a member of Naaman's household. Why? That she might be a link in the chain which ended not only in the healing of his leprosy-racked body, but also in the salvation of his soul. And here's this important lesson that we must take from this incident. Here's the light that that is shined upon the mysterious ways of God and his providence, is this. He has a wise and a good reason behind each of the dark and perplexing trials that you're going through. The particular reason why God brings trials is usually concealed from us at the time it comes upon us. If it were not, there would be no room for the exercise of faith and patience during that trial. But just as surely as God had good reason for allowing the happiness of this Hebrew home to be darkened, he has a good reason in ordering whatever trial and sorrow has entered your life. This is why Paul can write in Romans 15, talking about those things recorded in the Old Testament, that these were recorded for our learning that we might through patience and comfort of the scriptures have hope. I want you to notice as well, look carefully at verse 3, how this young woman views her captor. She says to her mistress, Mrs. Naaman, if only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. Now I want you to think about what would have been natural. By natural, I mean what comes from the natural heart that's not been converted. What would have been natural for this young girl to have thought when she sees her master, he would have been repulsive. She wouldn't have cared if he, if he died or was healed. What would have been natural would have been for this young woman to have nursed a spirit of hatred against Naaman. After all, he was the commander of the Syrian military. It was he who commanded these raiding parties that had snatched her away from her own home. And it would have been natural, wouldn't it have, to have 
cultivated a hatred for him. And to have been secretly pleased, maybe even openly pleased, that he was so afflicted in his body. You see, here's what happens to us naturally. The fall, which affects every man by nature. The fall not only alienated men from God, but it radically changed our attitudes towards our fellow men, evidenced by Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Human depravity has poisoned every relationship. In their unregenerate state, men are described by the scriptures as hateful and hating one another. But look at verse 3. Do you see the tenderness, the compassion, the kindness of this young woman? Instead of cherishing hatred towards her captor, this young lady is concerned about his condition, caring about his welfare. Apparently she had been brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and the seeds were planted of kindness and gentleness by godly parents, and those seeds have now sprung up and borne fruit in her life. Isn't it a glorious thing to see grace triumphing over the flesh. How this young girl puts us to shame. How often have we conducted ourselves sinfully when the providence of God crossed our wills and brought us into situations where we had no liking. How rebellion is stirred in us, complaining about our circumstances or just whining and saying, why, why, I demand that you give me an answer. And so far from being a blessing to those who, with whom we come into contact, we're a stumbling block to them because of our complaints. Wasn't this young girl, surely a young teenager at the oldest, placed in horrible circumstances in a most trying situation, and yet we read nothing of murmuring against God or bitterness towards her captor? Instead, she bore faithful testimony to the God of Israel and was moved with compassion towards her leprosy-riddled master. What a beautiful picture of the sufficiency of divine grace. She remembered her Lord in the house of bondage, and she spoke of his servant, the prophet. No position would have seemed more desolate than this defenseless girl in the house of her proud captors. And no situation could offer fewer promising openings for usefulness. But though her opportunities were limited, she made the most of them. She doesn't despise the day of small things. She she takes this tiny window of opportunity she has. She doesn't conclude it's useless for her to open her mouth and say, I'm just a servant girl. I'm just a captive here. I don't even speak the language very well. She doesn't argue that an audience of one person, Naaman's wife, was worth addressing. Look what she does in verse 3. In a simple, earnest manner, she proclaims the good news of hope. Parents, let me ask you. I don't want to run away from this young lady. We'll look at Elisha and Naaman and Gehazi in some depth in weeks to come. But let me ask you tonight, parents. Are your children, and you think, Carl, they're only 12, 13, 14. Surely this girl was perhaps not even that old. Are your children prepared to minister wherever God and his providence might take them? Well, Carl, I'm going to keep them in a cocoon until they're 18, maybe 34, something like that. And then, maybe then I'll let them step outside the front door. 
Joseph is taken as probably a 15-year-old into bondage in Egypt. Daniel is taken captive as probably a 13, 14-year-old into pagan Babylon. And now this unnamed young girl is trafficked out of Israel, laboring as a house slave in Syria. All of these are taken away. Do you think it's coincidence that many of the heroes of the Old Testament are taken out of Israel and placed in pagan nations and they shine? All at very young ages. All are used mightily by God. What would your child do if tonight... They were removed from the cocoon of your protective environment. Would they stand firm in the faith? Would they be a blessing to the pagans around them? My friends, this young woman is one of the shining heroes of the Bible. The other lesson I'd be remiss if I didn't apply. We see it early in the the tale of Naaman. This is a man who has attained great status and standing, military triumphs, political triumphs. God is sovereign. He can bless whomever he wants. He can bless a pagan Syrian who's an idol worshiper. And we're going to see by the end of this chapter, he can also save whomever he desires. If he can save Manasseh, he can save Naaman. And God is sovereign. He can use the most unlikely people in his service. In our text, the shining hero is an early teenage girl. God is sovereign and can use any instrument he pleases. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how it continually surprises us and humbles us. Our Lord, as we walk through this text in the next few weeks, we pray that you would teach us its lessons Show us the gospel here as we see the deadness of leprosy and the cleansing that you alone can give and how you receive all the glory. Teach us its lessons and mature us, deepen us in the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.